This is episode 47 of the Next Year Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dara Wolf, professional speaker and performance coach. If you want to push through the challenges holding you back and finally achieve what you've always dreamed of, then you need to start listening to the Next Year Now podcast with my friend Tom Hefner. So many of the times that I think I was catalytically valuable to the company, it was actually helping us to see a blind spot by asking a why or what if question. Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion, but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development, productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business and entrepreneurship. Today's guest, Chip Conley, is a New York Times bestselling author. He also gave a wildly popular TED Talk on what makes life worthwhile and is a hotelier entrepreneur, having started Joie de Vie almost 30 years ago. He has a brand new book, Wisdom at Work, launching in September, which I'm sure is going to be another New York Times bestseller. In our conversation, Chip and I will be discussing the most important lesson he learned from starting a boutique hotel in a rundown inner city motel at just 26 years old. How Airbnb shaped his views on experience and wisdom in the workplace. What you can do now to leverage your own wisdom and experience, the most effective habits and practices you can cultivate to achieve success, book recommendations to help you connect and find meaning and improve your happiness, and so much more. Rebel hospitality entrepreneur and New York Times bestselling author, Chip Conley is a leader at the forefront of the sharing economy. At age 26, he founded Joie de Vivre Hospitality, transforming one inner city motel into the second largest boutique hotel brand in America. After running his company as CEO for 24 years, he sold it, and soon the young founders of a company you may have heard of, Airbnb, asked him to help transform their promising startup into the world's leading hospitality brand. Chip served as Airbnb's head of global hospitality and strategy for four years, and today acts as the company's strategic advisor for hospitality and leadership. Chip's five books include Peak and Emotional Equations and are inspired by the theories of transformation and meaning by famed psychologists Abraham Maslow and Viktor Frankl. In his new book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, Chip shares his experience as both mentor and unexpected intern at Airbnb and why he believes the intergenerational exchange of wisdom in that environment is critical to the modern workplace and our society. Chip, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show, my friend. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Look, I can't tell you how excited I am to chat with Chip about his upcoming book, Wisdom at Work. I think this book is on the leading edge of really a curve that's bringing back experience to the workplace and for the world, for that matter. And there's just so much for us all to learn here. 
I know all of you are as excited as I am to hear from Chip, and I promise we're going we're gonna to dive into that soon. But before we do, let's get to know Chip a bit more. Chip, I have a few friends from my college days that went into the hospitality business. So I went to Penn State, my undergrad, there was a hospitality major. And one of the things that I remembered from them was just how challenging and tough like working in the hospitality business was, especially in the early days. You know, you're working long hours, you're working midnight hours, um, you're dealing with potentially some challenging customers at times. Why did you to start? Why did you decide to start a boutique hotel company at such a young age? And, and maybe further challenging yourself, why did you decide to um, do that with a an inner city motel? First of all, Tom, it's just great to be with you. Thank you. Part of the reason the hospitality business is tough is because it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's not, it's a marathon. It is not a hundred yard dash. Um, and things can, sometimes the things that happen that are most, you know, biggest mishaps happen during the off hours. So that's part of the challenge. There's an element also that the business is, uh, full, uh, dealing with people when they're, you know, in some ways, uh, at risk because they're traveling and, you know, but people aren't comfortable in a, a habitual environment. But what I loved about it, and it, back in the mid-1980s when I was a couple of years out of Stanford Business School, <laughs> I saw that there were so many people coming through San Francisco and they're all staying on my couch. <laughs> Before there was a company called Couchsurfing, there was Chip Conley's couch, which was full of people I went to college and business school with. And I started doing a focus group of one at a time. And I would ask them, so why are you sleeping on my couch? Why, why? I mean, obviously, I'd say yes to them, and they'd come over. And, and of course, initially, it was because they just wanted to hang out with me. But what I learned over time was that you know, younger people coming to San Francisco found hotels in San Francisco expensive and also boring. So I said, okay, let's, find, let's create an inexpensive, sort of cool hotel. And yet, I was 26 years old and didn't have any money. And uh, needed to raise some money, and I could, the only amount I could raise, I raised one point one million dollars, and wow. t- to actually be able to buy a hotel and then renovate it and reopen it, and to do all that for about a million dollars, even in the mid nineteen eighties, was way, 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 way too cheap. So I, <laughs> I found a motel in a bad neighborhood that was in bankruptcy, but it had some interesting bones. It had a beautiful. It was on an acre of land, you know, courtyard with a swimming pool and trees. Okay. And, restaurant that sort of looked out onto the courtyard and I just said you know what this is it you know at age 26 I'm gonna like try to become a, a hotelier and I called the company joie de vivre uh, which means joy of life in French because that was our mission statement is to create joy of life for our employees and our, our guests and so that's how I got started I imagine back then that must have been kind of just a Herculean task and just crazy times but if you think back about that experience in the in, in those early days what stands out to you about that? You know, I think there's Stuart Brand created something called the, the Whole Earth Catalog, and um, it was Steve Jobs' Bible. And he said long ago, when you start a company, you start a business, start cheap, small, and local. And that's because your your mistakes will be small. So mm-hmm. if, you, if I'm creating a boutique hotel for the first time, at, at a time when, frankly, there weren't many boutique hotels in the United States – um, I, I think the fact that I started small and that first hotel, I didn't do a second hotel until about three and a half years later. It gave me the time to learn. It gave me the time to just really understand the business. And um, I think that was helpful for me because 
uh, I didn't actually get to my, I did a second and a third hotel, uh, in my fourth year. Um, and, and then I didn't do my fourth hotel until my seventh year. But then between year seven and year 10, we went from three hotels to 13 hotels. Wow. So, so that's when I started to supercharge the growth because at that point I think I'd created enough of a model for how to succeed mm-hmm. in, in boutique hotels to, to make it work. That advice kind of reminds me of something I heard from Jeff Woods. So he, uh, he has a podcast called The One Thing. And he, it's part of a company. I don't know if you ever read the book, The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papazan. I have not, but I've heard of it. Yeah, fantastic book. And I'll just kind of, you know, long story cut short. He said one of the best pieces of advice that he got from Gary Keller, who, you know, started Keller Williams, this iconic real estate company, the largest real estate company in the world was, it's important to think big, but go small. And so when I think about that advice you were just giving, which was, yeah, if you started something that's local, then your mistakes are smaller. And to his point too, was, you know, it's important for all of us to think big, but go small. What's the, what's the, the one domino that you can put in front of yourself to, to knock down so that you can achieve a little bit of a success. So, um, I think that's really important. I, I agree. I agree. Well, look, you ran your company for 26 years. I think that's a long time to run a company and even more so when you're in such a competitive industry, looking back on that experience, what were the most important lessons you learned about pursuing and achieving success? You know, I think Learning how to define editing functions in how you saw people and how you saw your strategy was important. If you were saying yes to everyone and everything, something was wrong. And, um, or what I mean by that is I, I had some sense of like, what were the, some of the minimum standards I was looking for in certain ways around the people I would hire in the company and what were qualities around people who I felt succeeded in the company and, and the processes of us interviewing people would, would include those kinds of things. And some of those things were quite unusual. For example, um, one of the questions that I loved asking anybody who was going to be in one of our hotels, restaurants, or spas. And of course I wouldn't ask this most of the time because I wasn't interviewing everybody was, (laughs) um, talk about something you've done in the last 30 days that was a service for someone else, something that you did out of the goodness of your heart, not because you were paid to do it in the company, not because you did this because out of obligation to your parents or et cetera, but something you did purely out of the goodness of your heart. Tell us what it was. Who'd you do it for? How did it make them feel? How did it make you feel? Now, that question is not necessarily appropriate if you were you know, looking to hire people for an accounting firm or for <laughs> an, an investment bank, but we're in the hospitality business and the both qualitatively and, and sort of quantitatively. So the quantitative piece of it is like, okay, what did they say? You know, does it have merit, et cetera. But it was more like what I was really interested in is how did the person light up? Did they feel like it's their calling to serve people and to make people happy and how they, the, so the, the emotional way they evoke something in talking about it, influenced whether we thought this person is a, a good fit for our core values. Now, someone may have a resume full of Marriott and Hilton and all the great hotel companies in the world, but if they didn't answer this particular question in a way that actually was um, sort of enthusiastic, then mm-hmm. they may not get a job. Similarly, exactly the opposite of Airbnb, which we'll talk about in a moment, is um, at Joie de Vivre, I, we created 52 boutique hotels only in the state of California. The editing function I had for that was like, 
we're not going to do anything outside the state. Now, I had investors and owners who wanted to have us manage their hotels. They didn't. No one could get that. No one said, like, what the heck are you doing? (laughs) Why would you just stay in the state of California? And my premise was this, is I thought, you know, we had some very, some very small hotels. We had some bigger hotels. Boutique hotels tend to be much smaller than chain hotels. And what I found is like each hotel had its own unique personality. Each hotel had its own name and its own personality. And having a bunch of them in a city where we could oversee all of them and, and you know, literally almost go to each hotel every day or every week um, allowed us to have a touch and feel of the hotels um, that you wouldn't get if you had to jump on a plane to see your hotels. So um, Holiday Inn is product line standardized, but geographically diverse, meaning every Holiday Inn sort of feels the same, Yeah. but they're all over. Our hotels were the exactly opposite. We were geographically standardized, only California, California. but product line diverse, every single one. So in, in we had boutique hotels in Laguna Beach, Huntington Beach, Long Beach, Venice Beach, um, Santa Cruz, <laughs> Big Sur. Those are six different locations along the California coast. But each of those six hotels was completely different than each other. So um, the the beauty of it was that that also created an editing function. So the moment somebody came to me with saying, hey, we want you to do a hotel in New York, I was like, we just don't do hotels in New York. Now, <laughs> could we have got – if I'd continued to run the company longer, could we have gotten there? Sure. And I'd ultimately – the folks I sold the company to uh, chose to take uh, uh, Joie de Vivre and make it a you know a, a company that's all over the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, although they go, do bigger hotels, so they, they have fewer hotels than we used to have because their average size of their hotels bigger. Now, is that something that you consciously made that decision before you started your company, or is that something you just learned along the way? Of like, all right, given the goals, given my values, I know what I want to say no to, uh, or is that something? that you just kind of learned through the, the experience of, uh, of being a hotelier. I learned it. I learned that, you know, the, having the touch and feel, not just of like, you know, physically, how does the property look, but getting to know the staff and, and having the staff feel like they understand who you are. Um, and, and, and I think just if my experience was, I liked the family nature of the business that, um, we were, we were sort of really embedded in our communities and our staff really felt like we were there for them. Um, mm. And it's part of the reason the company's really got to a place where it became the second best place to work in all of the Bay Area after oh, wow. uh, after Google. I mean, it's like they had Google had a much larger budget for uh, <laughs> em, employee compensation and perks. But uh, well, and I would argue that the, the Google one is uh, was definitely overrated. I remember going there visiting. Uh, I've done a lot of research, uh, analogous research, and and they have amazing cooking facilities and things like that. But they they have their challenges and their and their problems just like everybody else. Sure, so. sure, of course, of course. <laughs> well, Chuck, let, let's talk about your book, Wisdom at Work. Uh, in in the book, you make the argument for experience and that the wisdom gained from that experience is something that companies are finally waking up to. And, you know, in today's world, I think so many companies, they rely on technology. They rely on STEM-related skills. So things like, you know, programming, engineering, uh, mathematics, analysis, and similar skill sets and I think most people would assume, especially when you go to college now, that you know, everybody's t- talking about STEM, 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 that those are going to be the most important things. Those are going to be the only things that matter. And, you know, we were, we were chatting before we started our conversation here. And I work at the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. So 
We do a lot of DOD projects, so building complex military systems. So I see this bias. I see this tendency. I see it firsthand every day, Chip. Mm-hmm. You know, talk, if you would, about how experience and the wisdom gained from that experience can play a role in companies helping, in helping companies to succeed. Well, I think one of the things that's fascinating about the era we live in is how technology is so um, ever-present. And, uh, you know, there was a time 20 years ago where the tech industry was sort of a separate industry, like the car industry. So, mm-hmm. like, tech as an industry would sort of go up and down like the car industry might. Well, today, tech industry is so f- in- infused in everything we do that it's just sort of the full economy is tech-driven. And yes, there are some companies, you know, seven of the 10 most valuable companies in the world today are tech companies. What's interesting is that because we are so reliant on digital and tech, what that's led to in many companies, as well as in many startups, is an, uh, a growing reliance on younger people. Um, mm-hmm. Because the digital natives, so to speak, um, are much more adept and frankly, attuned and fluent in how technology can actually be a, a real competitive advantage. All of that's good. So I'm not saying this to say that's a negative. Here's the problem, I think, though. I think we've actually uh, course corrected too far, uh, especially in Silicon Valley with with venture capitalists saying, you know, they don't want to invest in, in founders who are older than 30. Um, <laughs> and especially in situations where um, we see people come in for to um, work in a job and they're 24 years old and they're the new head of, head of marketing for a company because they know digital marketing well, but no one ever taught them emotional intelligence. And it's not, I'm not this is, a, this is a complete stereotype right now, but I think that what's fascinating is there's a collection of skills that helps a person be successful and singular knowledge of a particular um, specialty uh, will only get you so far The higher you go in an organization Frankly, things like emotional intelligence, leadership skills become more important. So mm-hmm. why not create, whether it's startups, uh, where you, where in my case with Airbnb, the founder of Airbnb, you know, who's 21 years younger than me, was sort of paired with me, or he paired, paired himself with me. He asked me to be his mentor. He understood digital technology, understood how to raise money from Silicon Valley. He understood millennial travel habits so much better than me. But I understood emotional intelligence, leadership skills, um, the hospitality industry, uh, how do you create learning and development in an organization. So it, the way I describe it is um, I could trade my EQ for his DQ. And mm. DQ is digital intelligence. EQ is emotional intelligence. And I think the future of work is such that we're going to see an intergenerational collaboration like we've never seen before because we have five generations in the workplace now. And um, I think it'll be uh, increasingly important to figure out how to create a potluck so each person can bring to the table what they do best and we can share. There's like a mutual mentoring that could come uh, be a, the result of it. That's a fantastic metaphor, by the way, potluck uh, yeah, <laughs> for the for the workplace. Well, l- let me dive into that uh, Airbnb experience a little bit more. How, how has your time uh, working with Airbnb shaped uh, your view on experience and wisdom. What did you learn there that kind of helped you see it this way? You know, I was asked to join Airbnb because I was a longtime boutique hotelier. So I'd sold my company. I lived in San Francisco right nearby the headquarters. And I was considered to be a bit of an innovator. 
so I thought coming in, and, I, and Brian asked me to be his mentor, and they, they'd read one of my books. So, so this is Wisdom at Work is my fifth book. But then the found, three founders had read a book called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, oh, yeah. one of my earlier books. And they liked it a lot. Um, so I thought I was supposed to come here and like dispense wisdom or something, you know. <laughs> and what I learned in the first week is like, my God, I yeah, I have some wisdom, but I've never been in a tech company before. I was 52. Um, I sat on the third day in my, on the job in in a meeting with engineers. There were like 12 engineers. The guy running the meeting was 25 years old. I was 52. He was talking <laughs> about these things. I didn't understand what he was saying. And then he turned to me, even though we really hadn't even been introduced, and he said, if you shipped a feature and nobody used it, did it really ship? And I was like, wow, that's like philosophy. If a, if a tree <laughs> falls in the forest and no one heard it, did it really fall? I, you know, um, the fact, the fact is, I just said to him, I have no idea what it means to ship a feature. And at that moment, I realized I am an intern as much as I am a mentor. <laughs> and that's when it really shifted into gear for me in terms of me understanding, wow, the, I think the, mo- the traditional elder of the past dispensed wisdom, but it was sort of like you had accumulated knowledge. And because the world wasn't changing so fast, you're dispensing wisdom about you know, like how to – what like like land wisdom for a farmer but with the world we live in today um my accumulated knowledge actually frankly much some of it's frankly maybe not that important anymore but there's a bunch of other things that are probably are important and so the question was how do i edit what i know in such a way that i figure out what's important and what's not and how do i become as much of a beginner's mind so i can learn and that's what i did and a modern elder is as much of an intern as they are a mentor Mm. Chip, I want to pivot here a little bit, but I work in the design thinking world. That's, you know, I teach design thinking. I use design thinking to solve really tough challenges. And one of our methods is analogous research, where we look to other companies or industries for inspiration. That's inspiration of insights, inspiration of solutions, you name it. And through that experience, I visited a lot of tech companies out in Silicon Valley uh, and elsewhere, startups and giants alike, companies like Facebook, Google, Oculus Rift. And one thing I noticed every time I visit these companies, and you alluded to this earlier, is that they're filled with young people. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't see many people with a lot of experience, uh, and by extension, the wisdom that comes with that. And I'm not saying that, you know, these young people are not smart people, that they're not good at what they do. It's just that, uh, in, in the, in the, in the mindset that we're thinking about it, you know, that, that wisdom that comes from having that experience, how can we get companies to embrace the value of experience and wisdom, not unlike Airbnb did with you. Well, I, I, part of the reason I decided to write the book, and then we'll talk in a few minutes about this modern elder academy uh, we've just created. Part of the reason I'm doing this is uh, I was lucky enough to join Airbnb five and a half years ago when it was a, a small tech startup. No one saw it really as a hospitality company, and you know we were doing one percent of the business we're doing today. So. I've been fortunate. I've had a you know a, a real uh, fascinating ride. Um, four years uh, in a leadership role, basically side by side with the part the founders, you know, leading the company, um, and then the last year and a half as a strategic advisor. My belief is that we need to start telling this message out there because if power is moving ten years younger, and uh, all of us are going to live ten years older, we're creating a pretty long irrelevancy gap for people mm-hmm. who will feel irrelevant longer in their life because they'll live longer, but they'll also start feeling 
you know, irrelevant at age 35, which is what happens quite often in Silicon Valley and in the entertainment industry and in the advertising industry, et cetera. So what I'm suggesting is just because someone has a narrow specialty in, you know, advertising and now there's this whole digital marketing platform, that doesn't mean that that person who has 30 years of experience in advertising and understands account management, understands leadership, understands what the de- being able to, to determine the difference between a fad and a trend, um, mm-hmm. that person has a lot of institutional wisdom. And don't just take them out to pasture, pair them up with a young person, but not because that older person is going to just be the mentor passing on knowledge you know, in a hierarchical fashion from old to young. No, exactly the opposite. It's a mutual mentorship relationship, and, and you can actually help both parties learn from each other. And so I think that's the future of, of the workplace is, is being less age segregated. You know, it's interesting that we, uh, you know, there's so much data and uh, evidence on this that diverse teams tend to do better. Um, but we, when, we t- when we talk about diverse teams, it's often diversity around gender or race. Mm-hmm. It's almost never around age. And the studies that have shown uh, what happens with age diversity on teams shows quite conclusively that actually age diversity, especially if you have a consumer that you're actually uh, is you, the old ultimate user mm-hmm. that is uh, of all ages, it's so much better to actually have an age diverse team, primarily because it means you have less groupthink. Well, let's let's dive deeper on this. Uh, for all of us that do have uh, a lot of experience, that maybe we've developed good judgment. Um, we've developed the ability to collaborate well with others or to navigate the emotional behaviors of the workplace. What are some specific, uh, effective approaches for us to utilize our experience and wisdom in the workplace? You know, I think first of all, being able to mine your mastery, meaning like understand what it is that you actually do really well. And uh, the part that's interesting for people is a lot of people don't know that they just know they have a resume. They know they have a set of skills and there may be, they're, they have almost technical skills in the following areas, but they, you know, who knows who's got great pattern recognition that you actually, you you have a great intuition around, you know, how to interview people. I mean, this is not something you necessarily see on someone's resume, even though it might be their, one of their greatest masteries. So mm-hmm. I, so part of the thing that I've tried to do, um, the book, the book speaks to this to some degree. And then we created this modern elder Academy, on a beachfront campus down in Mexico where people can actually come and learn how to mine their mastery, learn how to um, be a, a, a beginner's mind in terms of how do you, as a, as, a, as a modern elder, how do you ask questions that are catalytic? Um, I think a lot of us think that somehow the smartest person in the room is the person who has all the answers. And actually, what I've actually learned in this tech world is frankly that sometimes the smartest person in the room is the person who asks the catalytic questions. Because a question and the, the style of questions that we teach um, at, the, at the Modern Elder Academy are, is called appreciative inquiry. And yeah, appreciative, David Cooper writer. Yeah, exactly. So appreciative inquiry really, if you get it right, helps a person open up to possibility. And um, yet there's empathy built into the question. So it's not like a person feels like they're on the witness stand. But most importantly, it actually helps people to ask ask bigger questions. So one of the things that's interesting about asking questions, especially if you're a little bit older, is quite often the kind of questions that an older person or a senior leader is expected to ask are what and how questions. 
because those are sort of optimization questions. Yep. <laughs> and yet the questions I asked at Airbnb, especially around technology, because I was so na- naive. Now, if, if I just didn't understand something and everybody in the room got it, I didn't want to be like slowing down the process of everybody else in the room. So I just asked someone on the side after the meeting. But if there was a question that felt like it was a, a really thoughtful, maybe bigger question, these are questions that are why and what if questions. So what and how are optimization questions, but why and what if questions are almost existential and they're bigger. Now, they can sound almost naive, but so many of the times that I think I was catalytically valuable to the company, it was actually helping us to see a blind spot by asking a why or what if question. And so I, I part of the what I think people need to learn is that, yes, part of it's learning how to mine your mastery. And then it's also partly how do you set yourself up as not just the, the, the beginner's mind, you know, uh, the person who learns, you know, who wants to learn a lot, but how do you actually, with your learning, help other people to become better learners as, as well? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a really, really important point here. And I'll just double down and say, you know, as somebody who works in the technology world, now more than ever, solutions are available to us, right? If like, if I need to write a piece of code, oftentimes I can just go online and say, Hey, find me a subroutine to do this or find me, you know, C plus plus to do this. Uh, but it's asking those good questions, uh, and, and having the experience I think is really part and parcel to that, right? Not that, you know, young people can't, uh, or inexperienced people can't ask good questions, but I think it becomes easier to ask, uh, those catalytic questions or those rig, really big, hairy questions, um, when you have that wisdom, when you have that experience. For sure. There's no doubt about, about it. I mean, there's an, el- there's an element of confidence. Here's the interesting thing I learned. Um, if you're in a, in a workplace where as you get older, you feel less confident because you feel less relevant and, and people don't want to listen to you, that's a problem. And the question is, how do you create the habitat where you know people are going to want to listen to you? And so confidence for me was something I had coming in, which was helpful because I was asked to join this company at age 52, which is unusual. Um, most people who are 52 are trying to knock on a door of a tech company and, and not getting a response. <laughs> so the key is how do you have that level of confidence that's going to help you to ask questions and to be self-assured, but matched with a certain level of doubt such that you're not just full of hubris. I think one of the things that's interesting about youth versus getting a little bit older and, and more mature is you go from hubris to humility because <laughs> the truth is when you're 26 and you're raising money to for this little tech startup that's going to be a rocket ship, the venture capitalists are looking for hubris. They're looking for someone who's like going to be willing to pour all of their time into it and is, and, and is completely convinced it's going to succeed. But that sort of selling mentality applied to running your business or applied to going out and getting customers actually can come across as arrogant or applied in the sharing economy to actually trying to work with regulators. It can come across potentially as, as hubris and arrogance and it actually can be counterproductive. So I think another element that can be really helpful about having some age um, mixing is, you know, as you get older, you can actually have more humility. And if you have more humility mixed with the hubris, it can actually be quite catalytic as well. So I think that that's another element is, you know, if you've seen it all and you've known it, and very few people who have seen it all think they know it all. But um, when you're younger, you haven't seen it all. 
Well, and it, it's, it's good that you raise that point because in tech in technology companies, especially you're incentivized for your value of knowing everything. And so oftentimes when I work with millennials or young, uh, more inexperienced people, that's one of the things that they never want to show that they don't know something. They'd rather just keep quiet. And in, in those moments when you can ask a powerful question, revealing that you maybe not know the answer that's really, really important and sometimes can really move the project, the program or, or whatever it is you're working on forward. Great. Yes. I, I, the part that's so interesting to me is, um, I, I can, I, I'm like forecasting the future, but if I'm looking out 10 or 15 years and I'm knowing that more and more people are actually going to work till age 75 instead of 65 because they're going to live till age a hundred. And in some cases they have to do it because they don't have retirement savings or enough, yep. or in some cases they do it because they want to do it. So we got that situation. And yet we have people feeling old at age 35. It used to be that midlife was 45 to 65. I now think it's 35 to 75. It's a marathon. And I think if that's all, if that's the future, we are going to see this new kind of mm, it just age mixing that is like the potluck that allows people to sort of learn from each other in ways that we've never seen before. One of the things that you mentioned earlier was the Modern Elder Academy. Can you tell us more about uh, what's that look like? Uh, what's what's your grand vision for that? Well, I, you know, what it came out of Tom, I was just like starting to write my book and Wisdom at Work, uh, which I, I started writing about 15 months ago. And I was interviewing a lot of people who were mostly 45 to 65, but I ended, ended up going 35 to 75 as well. And what I found was a level of anxiety and bewilderment that really scared me. I mean, I knew some of this, but when it, this was even close friends who had never really expressed this vulnerability with me where they felt more and more irrelevant and yet they were going to live longer. And that's a really uh, potently uh, ang- anxiety producing kind of combination. Yeah. So I, I thought about it and like, oh, well, I'm a hospitality person. I love creating boutique hotels and environments. Um, and I am on the board of something called the Esalen Institute, which was the first famous personal growth retreat center in Big Sur, California. Um, okay. Started back, you know, you know, 56 years ago. And so I said, wow, and I've got this content I want to have. Why don't, what if I were to create a sort of a, an academy that's a combination of boutique hotel experience personal growth retreat center, but it's all focused on people in midlife. And I went out and did some research and said, okay, well, there's lots of personal growth retreat centers and yoga retreat centers and things like that. But is there any place that I actually have created an actual curriculum around midlife? And then I did a little bit further research. Um, I know you're, 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 you're a little bit of a geek on, aren't you? (laughs) Okay. So you'll appreciate this. Um, You know, when you think about people going through transition in life in a society, Historically, societies and communities have created a right, like a rite of passage or a mm-hmm. ritual or festivities or celebrations. Think, think of it. Okay, people going into puberty. Well, there's bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs yeah. and quinceañeras. Okay, people are moving from adolescence to adulthood. You have commencement ceremonies because you graduate from high school or college. You're going to get married. You have a wedding. You're going to have a baby. You have a baby shower. shower. You're going to die. You have a funeral. But between, between baby shower and funeral, <laughs> there ain't a lot. And that's partly because the longevity in the United States in the year 1900 was 47. By the year 2000, it was 77. We added 30 years to our longevity in one century. And that, in essence, created a midlife. Because midlife at age 1900, in year 1900 was 23 or 24 years old. So 
there's now midlife. And it was a crisis in 1965 when that term got coined. And it's 53 years later, and we've done zero since then to actually address in a sort of- Well, we made it worse in some ways. In some ways, we made it worse because we made it longer. And so the truth is this: the idea of a rite of passage, a ritual, or an academy with a curriculum uh, and with guest faculty that come and actually teach. I I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. No one's created a midlife wisdom school ever before. I'm going to try it. And so for the first half of this year, January through June, we had 153 people go through our beta program uh, with 14 different weeks of programs, most people in a one-week program, some people in a two-week program, um, all down at this beachfront campus in Mexico. And um, it went exceptionally well. So we now open to the public uh, in early November, and people are applying now, and they can go to modernelderacademy.org. Half the people who will go will be on scholarship. So this is a social enterprise, which basically means it's operating like a nonprofit. Um, because my point of view is like, I, you know, the most interesting thing about the first half of this year is when I saw an investment banker and a social worker walking down the beach, basically <laughs> teaching each other because the, you know, that socioeconomic diversity makes for an even yeah. interesting mix of people. And so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, if, you know, whether it's your parents or yourself, you know, people should go to the website just to check it out. It's, I'm not doing it to make money. I'm doing it may, hopefully to make some change. I love that. Uh, we'll definitely have that on the show notes page and include that on the, the social media. So, um, so yeah. Right. Well, look, uh, Chip, before I move on to kind of the last part of our, our discussion here, is there anything else from your book, Wisdom at Work, that you'd like us to know or that you think is important um, that I haven't hit on yet? Well, I think the thing to, that I just sort of maybe sum up on is that the idea of people having a not the clue of how much life they still have left in their life. Um, I was uh, was scuba diving with my dad in rural Sulawesi, which is Indonesia, uh, in May. And we both went on to a longevity website where, you know, you can just plug in all of your data (laughs) and they tell you how long you're going to live. So both my dad and I got the same answer, 98. We're going to both live to my 98. My dad's 80. Wow. My dad's 80 and he's just scuba he's scuba diving with me. So he's you know, he's got he's, he's doing good. He probably still has 18 years and for me I so and I'm 57 and so if I have till 98, I have 41 years of adulthood ahead of me. Do you know how many years of adulthood I've already experienced if I've, I'm 57 now and you start <laughs> counting at age 18? I've had 39 years. So at age 57, I am not even halfway through my adult life. When you start thinking that way, it it opens you up to realizing your life is not over at 50. The question mm-hmm. is, though, how do we help people to start realizing that so that they actually are open to saying, you know, it's 55 years old, I'm going to try something new. So you're actually open to possi- those possibilities. And then how do we help society realize that uh, these folks aren't supposed to be put out to pasture, but they actually have a lot of value. Um, so that's, you know, I think the basic me- message of the book is how do people individually make their changes, but then actually how do we as a society make the change as well? Well, look, I couldn't put a, a better bow on that one. I'm excited to see how the modern elder Academy, uh, plays out. I'll, I'll be hopping on the phone with my dad after this and telling him, Hey, right. you need to, you need to go down and, uh, and, and apply for this. Love that. Um, Love that. Well, look, it's time for my favorite part of the show. Chip, you've written five books, so I think you'll appreciate this discussion. And this is where we talk about one of the very best habits we can adopt today, and that is the habit of reading. Mm. Chip, I want you to think about the books you've really enjoyed over the years, or maybe the books that have impacted you deeply. What are the two or three books that stand out for you? 
Well, I, I'm going to give you a couple that one is, has been an age old one for me. I've used it many times in my life when I've most needed some, something to actually just sort of help me with a little bit of, um, more momentum or I'm going through a difficult time. And it's a, a book called Man's Search for Meaning by, mm. by Viktor Frankl. Um, if you think you're having a bad week or month, uh, read that damn book and you'll realize, gosh, living in a concentration camp, was incredibly difficult. And he was a psychologist and he helped to really see that the people who were dying in the concentration camp weren't necessarily the most infirmed or sickly, but they, there were those who had, get, had lost a sense of meaning. And so, um, so meaning is sort of an elixir for life. And I, you know, that's a really good reminder, uh, especially when you're going through a difficult time. More yeah, re- I usually, yeah. I usually read that book. It's my, my end of the year book that I always read every year because yeah. it, it like you said, if you are feeling down or if you are feeling like, oh, woe is me, it's a nice way to, one, give you some perspective, but two, reconnect you with the power of meaning. Um, I just think it's a, it's a fantastic book. And I'll offer this for you if you haven't read it already. Mm-hmm. There's a book by Emily S. Fahani Smith, um, The Power of Meaning. Uh, that is a really fantastic book and I kind of, look it up. Yes. yeah, it kind of builds on this idea of meaning and she goes through the kind of the four pillars of meaning. Um, but I think you'll really dig it. Okay. Thank you. Um, the other one, I'm just writing it down right now. Um, <laughs> the second one I'd suggest is a newer book. So this is a book I read in this year, um, by a guy named Jonathan Rausch called the happiness curve. And, um, it's not like a lot of the books about happiness. There's a lot of books that have been written about happiness. And I have a TED talk in 2010 on the big TED stage about <laughs> happiness. Um, so a lot of the books on happiness are sort of about how do you make you happier? Now, the, the thing about this book that's interesting is it's not about that. It is actually a book that goes into the social science uh, of studying happiness uh, during different stages in life. And there's an, an ample evidence at this point that there is a happiness curve. People tend to be happy in their early 20s, and in their later 20s, they start getting a little bit less happy. 30s, it drops. And in the 40s, it sort of nosedives. And so the worst time of most people's lives is their 40s. Um, And it starts to get better again in the latter part of people's 40s, around 50. And then, frankly, people who are in their 50s are happier than 40s. People in their 60s are happier than their 50s. And people in their 70s are happier (laughs) than their 60s, 50s, and 40s. So it's, um, it's not told from a social science perspective. It's not, it's not, a, it's not um, just purely an academic book. It, there's a personal side to it as well. And I, what, the reason I love the book is because um, it's really helping people to see that, frankly, it gets better after age 50. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Some of them are somewhat obvious, like, wow, you know, in, in, in some cases, a lot of people have uh, the mashup of uh, family and kids and, um, and there's an element of like they've accumulating so many responsibilities and in their forties, <laughs> it's less like it's burdening them and people in their fifties start to feel less burdened by that. Maybe because they're empty nesters, maybe because, um, they are just starting to learn how to edit their life better. But the book's a really great read for somebody who is, um, especially in their mid forties, who, <laughs> who might look at this and say, you know what? Um, is, it, does it get better than this? And there's a sense in society that it doesn't because the playing field we tend to look at uh, in society is usually a physical or financial one. And our physical peak as an adult was our 20s. Our financial peak is often between about mid-40s and mid-50s, not in terms of wealth producing, but in terms of salary, depending upon the industry you're in. Mm-hmm. But, but your, your, your greatest capacity as a human 
not the not the physical side, not the financial side, but your greatest capacity as being a human is actually later in life because you've actually accumulated a lot of wisdom around understanding people and yourself. And so um, it's a beautiful book and it very much speaks to the idea that uh, the second half of your life might actually be better than the first, which is you know not what we normally see in mainstream press. All right, I'm going to I'm going to pick that one up. As somebody who's uh who's getting ready to go into their 40s, has three kids, uh I can definitely appreciate the yeah. the added responsibilities piece. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, cool. Uh final question. Uh what's next for you? What are you what are you excited uh, and I know you have the Modern Elder Academy, so that's probably going to take up a lot of time, but uh, yeah. uh but I suspect that maybe you might be thinking about kind of what's next for you. Well, we are going to look, we're actually in conversation to do a second campus um, in a beautiful resort area that's in the U.S., uh, with the first one being in Mexico. So um, that's exciting. I think what's next for me is I, I do feel a, a strong sense of mission associated with helping um, the world see that uh, people in midlife um, are not just preparing for decrepitude of elder life. <laughs> Um, and, um, so I think that my message of, you know, that's, I don't know how it will manifest. I would love to create a movement, sort of like a midlife movement that helps people to see, you know what, um, I am in the process of becoming an elder in the making. And that's actually a good thing. It doesn't mean elderly. It just means elder. It means like I have some wisdom to offer. And, and yet that modern elder is as much the curious learner as they are the teacher. So I, I think that's probably the future for me is looking at how I can help uh, get that movement off the ground. Love it. Chip, this has been amazing. I'm taking away a lot of just amazing insights, uh, some concrete ideas for how I can thrive a little bit more every day and, and bring my experience and wisdom to bear in a way that I didn't uh, appreciate before this. So thank you very much. Great. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. You can connect with Chip Conley online through his website, chipconley.com, and on Twitter with his Twitter handle, at Chip Conley. All the links and resources Chip and I discussed can be found at the page created just for this episode, including links to his upcoming book, Wisdom at Work, and to his Modern Elder Academy. You'll find information about the Academy as well as app uh, related info. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash four seven. And finally, just a reminder, if you like the show and enjoy learning from our guests like Chip each week, please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes and maybe even subscribing. It really helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners like you. That's it for today. I'll see you next time.